Thomas, you better watch out. Woo! Give him another round of applause. That was amazing. Um, I'd like to go ahead first and invite our ushers down to come forward. Um, without them and our giving, come on down, ushers. Thank you. Um, without y'all's gracious giving, um, as y'all see, especially those of you that have been here from the beginning, the more our rooms fill up, um, we just need your generosity um, for a bigger space. The more that we can do in our community, the more that we're able to give back. So um, we're going to go ahead and pass the baskets today because we do have communion while I'm giving updates about things that are going on. So ushers, go ahead, do that while I have my list of 500 things I need to tell you about. Okay, first things first, um, the big table is coming up March 5th. Um, that's going to be right here at the River Center um, at 630 you're going to get an update about what's going on with the building. Um, it's an opportunity for all of us to come together. Food's going to be provided, child care for the nursery. Um, it is a way for us to also honor our volunteers. So we value our volunteers. Things could not be running without our volunteers. We're really grateful for all of you. So whether you're a volunteer or not, um, you are a part of this church, and we want to honor you with that. So please go ahead and sign up online. Um, a bunch of us will be out at the Connect table after. If you also just want to go ahead and we can help you get registered for that, please sign up so that we know how much food we need for that event. So that's the big table. It's right here at the River Center, 630 March 5th. Um, March 11th is Do Good Day, where we get to go out in the community and sign up. Um, and get to go back and give in the community. So if that's something that you're interested in, we go to a bunch of locations around the area and um, help out and do good. So if that's something also that you're interested in, we can get you signed up for that day. Please remember that we have a virtual service March 12th. Um, so get together with some of your, maybe your small groups that have just started out. Go get breakfast, watch together online, sleep in and watch in your jammies from home. I don't really care. But do whatever works for you. Just don't come here. That is going to be March 12th. Um, and then, of course, when I'm up here, there's always a chance for me to plug students because that's just what I do. I'm the student ministry director here. So tomorrow, if you have a student, middle school or high school, we are going down to Senior Resources to pack lunches for Meals on Wheels because y'all don't have school. And what's a better way to sleep in? You don't want to sleep in tomorrow when you don't have school. You want to go pack lunches for Meals on Wheels for um, the elderly. So come on down. It's in Columbia. I've texted out to your groups. Um, but if that's something you're interested in, you can get dropped off. I'll be there. Or your parents and family and friends can come with you. Get all of your friends. Come on down to pack Meals on Wheels from 830 to 10 tomorrow. High school boys are going to start meeting before school because Pastor Nick likes to get up early in the morning at 7 a.m. at IHOP. That's starting on February 22nd. So high school boys um, come on down and have breakfast with Pastor Nick um, starting on February 22nd. And high school girls were continuing to meet the second and the fourth Sunday of every month. The next one's on the 26th. Woo! That's a lot of stuff. To be Look, and y'all finished passing baskets. Wonderful. And there's my sweet baby Emerson who never gets to stay in here and watch mommy on stage. So I let her stay in here today. Um, okay, and now we are going to have scripture reading by Bryson. Come on up, Bryson. Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 26. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. 
When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. May God add a blessing to the hearing and understanding of this scripture. Thank you, Bryce. Come on down. We'll take turns. Yeah. Good morning, everybody. Man, it's been a while since I've been up here. I had three weeks to work on this message. Y'all scared? You nervous? Should be. I got a lot to say. God, it's good to be with you, though. I just, and I love, I love Sundays. Don't take this for granted. How many of you remember these things? Put that picture up for me. Remember these? We got it. Who remembers this? These magic 3D eye puzzles? Remember these? How many of you can already see the image? Anybody know what it is? Look at it. Relax your eyes, as they say. Right? Anybody see it yet? Really? This makes me feel so good. That nobody, it's a shark, apparently. Apparently there's a shark in there. Wow, you just ruined my illustration. It's just this is done. Because nobody can see it. Apparently there's a shark in there. But I've I have never been able to see these things. Never. Anybody else? I mean, I thought for the longest time it was like a conspiracy. Like there's, there's no image there. I remember, like, in grade school, when these were popular, like, in the 90s. Remember that? Like, teachers would have these, like, little games. You know, it's like they'd put the picture up there, and whoever could see it the fastest would get a piece of candy. You know? It's like always these kids who would just see it right away. As soon as the picture pops up, boom, shark, give me the candy. Right? I never got a piece of candy. Never. But nothing gets in the way of Nick Cunningham getting a piece of candy. And so what I would do is, like, instead of looking at the picture, I would, like, find the kid who normally got it the fastest, and I would, like, just read his lips, you know, and try to say the word faster and louder than him. Like, shark, you know, and the teacher's like, Nick, you're not even looking at the picture. I know, that good. Give me the candy, right? Nah, I've never been able to see these things, but but they help prove a point, right? These magic 3D eye puzzles prove the point. There's a difference between looking at something and then seeing it. Am I right? Everybody say, ooh, did you feel that? The difference between looking at something and seeing it. Looking is what you do with your eyes. Helps you notice what's obvious. Seeing, of course, involves your eyes, but it involves more than that too, doesn't it? Seeing is about noticing, comprehending, understanding. I mean, think what we say to one another when we understand what you're trying to say. What do we say? I see what you mean. Right? It's about comprehension and understanding. See, this sets us up nicely for today's passage in Mark chapter 8. Today we are wrapping up our series through some of the miracles of Jesus. We've been saying all along that there's so much going on in these passages, right? There's what's obvious, the miracles. Then there's the deeper meaning, what the miracles are often pointing us to. We said this from the very beginning, that it's possible for people to affirm the miracle but miss miss the message, right? Sure, read these passages, believe in them, affirm them literally, but you have to read them figuratively. Because the way the author uses these stories, they're always pointing to something beyond themselves, something bigger even than themselves. And that's certainly true of this miracle. This one, man, it's rich. The word for sight or see shows up nine times in this short little story, which should tell us that, yes, it's about this man having his physical sight restored, 
but it's also about us and our sight as well. So we're going to get into it, but first, can we pray one more time? Let's do that. God, I thank you for every single person that you have brought here this morning, and I recognize we're all here for different reasons, but we're all here in the same, we have the same need. We need you to say something to us. We need you to help you, we need you to help us see more clearly. And so, Lord, I pray that you just do whatever you have to do in us right now, in this moment, just to get us to be present. As Jesus says over and over in the Gospels, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Speak to us, Lord. Make us different. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I love this story. It's so weird, isn't it? I love it. The story opens up with Jesus and his disciples. They, they come into this town, Bethsaida, which is sort of the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And some people bring a friend of theirs who's blind, and they beg Jesus to heal him. Right? And so it's interesting. Jesus takes the man, and he takes him outside of town. Did you notice that? That's interesting, right? Like, Jesus gets him away from the people, away from the crowds. And I'm like, if you're about to perform a miracle, shouldn't you do it where, like, everybody's at? So they can see it and get excited, but Jesus doesn't do that. He takes them away. They're in private. This is where the healing takes place. And the first thing that Jesus does is he spits in his eyes. Ew. Everybody say, ew. But if you read through the Gospels, Jesus uses spit a lot. Do you notice that? He involves spit a whole bunch in his miracles. That's because the ancient people believed that there was like medicinal qualities to saliva. And they were actually kind of right. Apparently, there's like an extra dose of white blood cells in your spit that helps to clean things out, get the healing process activated, which makes sense. Think about what you do. What's the first thing you do when you cut your finger? You stick it in your mouth, don't you? Right? If you whack your thumb with a hammer, what do you do? You stick it in your mouth, right? The ancient people believed there had to be something to that. So healers often utilized spit or saliva in their attempts to heal people, right? It's still weird, though. But Jesus spits in the guy's eyes, and then he asks him a question. Do you see anything? And the guy looks up, and he says, I see people, but they look like trees. Now, this tells us that the man probably wasn't born blind. He has some memory, some recollection of what people should look like, what trees look like. Perhaps it was some sort of cataracts, right, something he had developed uh, during his lifetime. But apparently, Jesus' first attempt didn't work all the way. And so then Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, and it says that his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. I love this story. I love it for so many reasons. I mean, one of them is I love how clunky it is. It's just clunky. There's nothing smooth about this story, is there? It's clunky. I like that word, clunky. Might be the first time I've ever used it in anything. But it's the only healing that happens in two stages. Jesus, God bless you. <laughs> Jesus doesn't get it right the first time. And typically in, the, in these healing stories, Jesus just speaks a word, right? He makes a command. He says one thing and it happens. Not in this one. He needs two tries. It takes him two tries. This is a unique feature of the Gospel of Mark. This story is found in Mark's gospel. And in Mark's gospel, Jesus is much more human. Very human in the gospel of Mark. I mean, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus takes lots of naps. Can I get an amen on that? <laughs> Sleeps a lot. He also, he loses his patience very quickly with the disciples. 
And just the previous chapter, he even says to him, are you still so dull? Right? In Mark's gospel, he's just a little more gruff. And I kind of like that. I mean, we, we, look, we looked at that story. Remember where he calms the storm? Other gospels, like, clean this up. He says, peace, be still. Not in Mark's gospel. He literally says, shut up. That's what he says. He says it to the storm, shut up. In Jesus' gospel, he's, in Mark's gospel, he's just much more human. You don't find this story in any of the other gospels. You don't. Mark's gospel is the only one that tells this story. Can I nerd out on y'all for a second? I'm a nerd out. Can we do that, little Bible nerd? But stay with me because this is super interesting. And I think one of the reasons why we don't read the Bible, and this is most of us probably don't, is because we're not that interested in it. I mean, if you can learn about it, learn about the Bible, it gets really fascinating. It makes it easier to read it. So I'm going to teach you about the Bible for a minute, right? And it'll help make this passage kind of pop. It's believed that Mark was the first gospel written. It's the OG, original gospel. You like that? Right? It's the first one written. And according to church tradition, the story of Mark actually comes from Peter. Peter's t- telling the story. Peter was a fisherman, uneducated, couldn't read, couldn't write. So he's dictating this to a guy named John Mark who's then, he's a literary genius, and he's writing it down and sort of putting it in story form, right? But it's believed that Mark was the first gospel written, and here's why. Because 90% of Mark, at least 90% of Mark, can be found in Matthew and Luke. Ma- Matthew and Luke. Those three are known as the synoptic gospels. John, John just does his own thing. Anybody got a weird uncle, right? John's like the weird uncle. He just sort of marches to his own own beat. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they call them the synoptics because they're similar. Similar view. That's what synoptics means. Now, Matthew and Luke are much longer than Mark, which most people believe then that they probably had a copy of Mark available to them. That's why you find 90% of Mark's gospel in, in Matthew and Luke, and they use it as a sort of outline. But each of them, they tweaked it a bit. They added to it. They sort of changed the order of some events. They removed some things to sort of tell us something unique about Jesus. But they both leave this story out. And I can't help but think it's because it had to do with the fact that it took Jesus more than one try. He didn't get it right the first time. And so that led them to feel like they had to leave it out. Now hang with me, because Matthew and Luke were written a bit later. And by then the church was a bit more established. It was starting to spread a bit. People were getting interested. It was becoming a bit more of a movement. And they needed to clean Jesus up a little bit. You know, he's still very human in Matthew and Luke. Don't don't hear me wrong. But he's more polished. And I have to believe that this story might have been a little embarrassing to them. You know? Here in Mark 8, Jesus just, he even seems a little unsure of himself. Did you feel that? He takes the guy away from the crowds, away from the city. And at this point in the story, he's never healed a blind person before. What if he's not sure how it's going to go? I've never tried this. <laughs> Let's see how it goes, right? And then even in all the other gospel stories, Jesus just speaks a word, a declarative word. And this one he asks a question. And the verb tense implies ongoing action. When it says he asked, do you see anything? I mean, he asked and kept on asking, do you, do you see anything yet? Do you see anything? Can you see anything yet? He's not even sure if it's happening yet. Does this make you feel uncomfortable? I think it makes some people feel uncomfortable. Because we need a perfect Jesus, don't we? We need a less than human Jesus. We need somebody who, do, who doesn't need a second try, who gets it right on the first time. 
I think it made Matthew and Luke uncomfortable. That's why they left it out. I'll tell you right now, it leaves a whole lot of modern scholars uncomfortable. I was reading so many commentaries this week, and it was like none of them could accept that this is what's going on. I know Jesus didn't need two tries. He's Jesus. And there's no way Jesus was unsure of himself because he's Jesus. He's God in the flesh. Right? He's supposed to get everything right the first time. And, man, people were just resisting. A lot of these scholars resisting this, this idea that maybe Jesus wasn't so sure. I, where did that come from? Like, where does that come from? Where do we get this idea from? I'm like, why, why not? Why? Like, what's wrong with Jesus being a little unsure of himself? And don't get me wrong. I affirm that he's somehow God with skin on. Right? I affirm that. But you know what? He's also human. He's human. And man, a Jesus who's a bit unsure of himself and has to figure it out as he goes, you know what? That's a Jesus I can relate to. What about you? But, I, but I'm interested in this. Stay with me here. I'm going to take this bit on maybe a bit of a tangent. I wasn't sure I was going to share this or not. There's a lot of things when I'm studying a passage that I think is really interesting, but I leave it out because I'm like, that might just be too weird for folks. But I'm actually going to try one of them today. Is that okay? And get inside of my brain, right? I'm really, really interested in this. I'm curious about this impulse to idealize Jesus, to edit out the blemishes, to make him perfect. Here's why. Because I think that same impulse that drove Matthew and Luke to idealize Jesus is the same impulse that drives us to idealize our own lives. I mean, our part of the world, we're obsessed with curated perfection, aren't we? You ever see anybody put up a profile picture with a glaring double chin? Right? No. Filter that thing up, right? Curated perfection. You know, we live in this culture that constantly promotes this idea of endless progress. So much so that, man, so many of us, we can't appreciate the beauty of our actual lives because we're constantly comparing them to some idealized version of it. You ever got a case of the what-ifs or the if-onlys? Yeah? If only. If only that had gone that way. If only they had paid me attention. If only I hadn't been born to them. If only I had caught in that break. If only, if, you know what I'm talking about? If only this would happen, that door would open. Then we'd be happy. Then we would know peace. I'm going to tell you right now, there's no peace there. Because that version of your life doesn't exist. It's a fantasy. Instead, I think what we need is for God to give us eyes to see and be present to the life that we actually have. Mark, let Jesus be Jesus. I think maybe we need to let us be us sometimes. Now, I love how Ronald Rawheiser talks about this in his book, Sacred Fire. Hands down, most influential book I've read in the last 10 years. I mean, it is such a good read. It's all about what it looks like to mature in the second half of life. I'm about to turn 40. I'm already there, I guess. But here's, here's what I'm realizing is I'm watching all my peers. So many people stall out in the second half of life, don't they? It's like in, instead of doing second half of life work, which is all about going in, and allowing God to deal with our bitterness and our anger and our disappointment about how our life's actually turned out. Instead of actually doing that work, you know what I watch a lot of people do? They just try to live the first half over again. That's what a midlife crisis is. It's a 40-year-old. I'm going to act like a 20-year-old. 
I'm tired of responsibility. Buy me a sports car. There's people run out on their, on their marriages. It's like there's some real resentment and bitterness they got to deal with. Instead of doing that, they think they just need a second honeymoon. They just keep trying to live the first one over and over and again. But Jesus invites us to a deeper place, to a more, more mature place. That's what this book is all about from Ron Rawheiser. What does it look like to, to move past surface-level living and to get into the deep waters where we're doing the real work? And we're experiencing real healing. And towards the end of the book, he summarizes the whole thing up into these ten commandments for the long haul. Don't you like that? Sort of ten things that we got to do if we're going to sort of not stall out in the second half of life. And his second commandment is all about this. He calls it making peace with the restlessness. I'm just going to read it to you because it's rich. Listen to this. It says, the ideal we have for our lives habitually crucifies the reality of our lives and makes us too restless to sit peacefully at our own tables, to sleep peacefully in our own beds, and be at ease within our own skins. Anybody know anything about that? It says, our lives seem too small for us, and we're always waiting for something or somebody to come along and change things so that our real lives, as we imagine them, might begin. But I love this. He says, to accept that we cannot have the full symphony means we never have our ideal. To accept that gives us permission to have a bad day, a lonely season, a life that somehow never fully gets free of tension and restlessness. It gives us permission as well not to be too hard on ourselves. And more importantly, it tells us to stop putting unfair pressure on our spouses Families, friends, vacations, and jobs to give us something that they cannot give. Namely, happiness without a shadow. Told you it was rich. He goes on to say this. We move beyond the cancer of frustration and restlessness by precisely accepting that here in this life there is no finished symphony. To be tormented by complexity and restlessness is to be human. And this is the thing right here. If you can get this. Man, to make peace with that is to come to peace. And we are mature to the degree that our own restlessness is no longer the center of our lives. Whew, I'll just go home now. I have found that to be so true. So true. Restlessness, that ugh, we feel. You, ever, you know what I'm talking about? Just that ugh, the big, deep, empty. I'm telling you what, it never goes away. It doesn't. And I feel like we're always being sold something, aren't we? In the secular world, oh, that big, uh, you know what you need to do? Renovate something. Buy something. Go somewhere. That'll get rid of it. No, it doesn't. We just feel it again, right? But there's a religious version to this, too. We sometimes sell Jesus like that. You got this big Jesus-shaped hole in your life, and if you just come to Jesus, it'll go away. You'll never. That's a lie. That's a lie. It's still there. I've been following Jesus most of my life. It's still there. No, instead, you know what faith, spirituality, God, you know what they want to do? Not get rid of it, but teach you how not to put it at the center of your life. It's not calling the shots anymore. Because I don't think it's all bad. That restlessness sometimes drives us to do things that we wouldn't normally do. It gives us a passion and a fire, but it can't be the place that we call the shots from. That's what faith and spirituality is really about. Now, we haven't gotten to the miracle yet. I'm going to leave it there. Is that cool? Just leave that with you. I shared something with you that I wasn't sure I was going to do. Is it okay? Is that right? Okay. 
Just do what you will with that. Let's get into the actual miracle. How are we doing on time? Okay, we're good. The key to really getting this miracle is seeing how it differs from the other ones. It's very different from the other miracles, right? The question that Jesus asks is super important. Do you see anything? You see, in the other miracles, Jesus makes a command. He just says it, and it happens. And that's because the other miracles are actually, they're about Jesus. They're about his authority, who he is, and what God is up to in him. This miracle is actually about us. It's about us and our sight, about whether or not we can see what we're being invited into. And this all really pops when you look at what comes right after this healing, right after this this passage. So just like Jesus took the blind man away from the town, in the next section, Jesus takes the disciples away from their stomping ground. He takes them to a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is a place Jewish people would not have gone. So he gets them away from what they're familiar with. He gets them away from all of the crowds, and it's there that he asks them a question. He says, who do people say that I am? Apparently there's some some rumors going on around about Jesus. And they say, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. How about that, right? Others say you're, you're like one of the prophets of old. You're like a new Elijah, right? You're one of those prophets. But then Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Do you see? Do you see who I am? Do you recognize it? Can you catch what's going on? And then Peter, the ever eager one, speaks up and he says, you're the Messiah. You're the one that we've been looking for. Now, we have to keep in mind that Peter probably didn't mean what most of us mean when we say Messiah. He didn't mean God with skin on. He didn't mean divine. He didn't mean you're the second person of the Trinity. What Peter meant probably is that you're the rightful king of Israel. You're the one that our prophets talked about, who God was going to send and, and sort of set things right, usher in a new age and like make things well. That's, that's who you are. That's, that's probably what Peter meant. See, Peter can see that's who Jesus is, but his sight is still a little fuzzy because he doesn't quite get what kind of Messiah Jesus actually is. From there, it says that Jesus began to speak plainly about where all of this was headed. Not to the throne, but to the cross. That he was going to confront the religious and political establishment, and that they would reject him, and eventually they would kill him. But that God would raise him up and give birth to a new movement that would then begin to set things right. But Peter didn't like the sound of that. And it says that he took Jesus aside, and he rebuked him. He said, this is not what I signed up for. It's not what I had in mind when I said that you were the Messiah. And so he takes Jesus aside and he rebukes him. In verse 33, though, it says this. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Whoa. Anybody ever call you that? You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You see, Peter is like the blind man after Jesus spit in his eye. He can see, but not clearly. He recognizes that Jesus is the one he's been waiting for, the one worth following, but he hasn't quite figured out what that has to do with the cross. And Jesus then goes on to give his manifesto. And I'm going to read this part to you from the message translation of the Bible. I love how the message puts this. Listen to this. It says, calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said this, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Don't run from suffering. Embrace it. Follow me and I'll show you how. Self-help is no help at all. Self-sacrifice is the way. 
my way to saving yourself, your true self? What good would it do for you to get everything you want and lose you, the real you? What could you ever trade your soul for? Essentially saying, I am who you think I am. But I'm not here to do what you think I'm supposed to do. I'm here to set things right. But I'm not going to do that in the same old way. I'm not going to do it through violence, force. I'm going to do it through self-giving, sacrificial love. And through a movement of people who embrace my cross-shaped way of life. Do you see anything, Peter? Do you see it? Can you see it? I love how Jesus says this part in the presence of the crowds. Did you catch that? Jesus calls the crowds over. Everybody, come here. Come here. Everybody, come here. But the teaching is directed at the disciples. Notice that. It's in the presence of the crowd, but it's directed at the disciples. See, the crowds were following Jesus around, frankly, because of the health care. They were. I mean, the previous chapters when he feeds them with the bread and the fish. Tons of people followed him around. Hey, can you do that trick again? Can we get some more food? They're hungry people, right? But the crowds followed Jesus around because of what he could do for them. They were in it for the healings and the miracles. And the beautiful thing is Jesus was willing to do it. He served them. He would do what they needed him to do. But make no mistake, this word wasn't directed at them. It was directed at the disciples. People who had left things behind in order to follow Jesus. You know, I'm not sure a word like this about self-sacrifice and taking up your cross makes sense unless you've stepped out of the crowd and you've become a disciple. Teachings like this don't make any sense, do they? Until you've stepped out of the crowd and you've become a disciple, a student, an apprentice. Lean into this. So many of us come to Jesus out of a need, don't we? That's usually how it starts. We're at our low. We've blown it in some big way. Our lives have become unmanageable, as they say in the recovery community. And so we come to Jesus, faith, spirituality, out of this need for something in our lives to be taken care of. Because we have this sense that Jesus can help us out. And that's a good and a beautiful thing. And I can tell you from experience, Jesus can help you out. But that's not all Jesus wants to do. Jesus wants to invite you into something bigger. Bigger than you and your problems. And hear me, it's not that your problems don't matter. Of course they matter. But Jesus wants to involve you in something even bigger than that. And many of us can bear witness to this. Am I right? We came to Jesus because we needed him to fix us. We needed him to do something for us. And that happened. But the more we allowed the Spirit of God to work in us, the more we begin to realize that there's way more going on here. That this is also somehow about the sort of world that God intends to make. And man, until we step out of the crowd, this does not make any sense. We take, take one of Jesus's. Most difficult teachings in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? <laughs> it's been a while in it, a while ago. But one of his most difficult teachings about turning the other cheek. Remember this one? If somebody strikes you, what do you do? You turn the other cheek, right? Man, you can convince people to do that one time if you can convince them how it's good for them, right? How it'll turn out for you. It'll turn out good for you, you know, if you do it this way. But then if they try it and it doesn't turn out good for them, Right? 
If you turn the other cheek and they don't apologize, they just hit you again. What do most people say? Oh, forget that. I'm going to start swinging now, right? And nothing actually changes. Things just keep going the same old way. That's something that somebody in the crowd would do. But a disciple, a student, wouldn't just ask, what's in it for me? They would ask, what sort of world would this make? Man, when I turn the other cheek and I commit to nonviolent, creative resistance to this, what kind of world does that make? It doesn't make sense to most people, does it? Not if you're part of the crowd. It's the people who realize, who see this bigger thing that's going on. And so this, this story, Jesus asked, do you see anything? It's an invitation. It's an invitation to step out of the crowd and get caught up in something bigger than you. It's about not only allowing Jesus to fix your eyes, but it's about allowing him to give us his vision. To see the world the way that he does. What would happen? What would happen if our commitment to the way of Jesus, to forgiveness, to generosity, to compassion, was rooted in something bigger than how it benefits us? What if we practice forgiveness, generosity, and compassion like the world depended on it? I mean, I, I just get so tired. I've been in church business for a long time, and it's always like you got to make sure you have all the amenities for people. People church shop. Make sure it's got all the things I want for it. And I'll be there as long as you do that for me, but then I'm done. And I, Is that why we come? Is that why we do this? Or is it to get caught up in some sort of movement we believe that God is somehow putting the world back together through? That's at the heart of what we're invited into. And I'm going to tell you right now, Jesus says this is where the life is at. This is where the real life is at. You want to find your life, you got to give it away. And I'm going to tell you what, I found that to be true. This is where the real life is at. Remember one of my, my, my heroes, you remember Mike Slaughter, he was here a little while ago, pastor of a church in Ohio where I served at forever. And, you know, this guy, man, if, if, I, if my life can do a fraction of what he's done, then I'm going to call it a success. There are thousands of people who are alive in every single way because of this man. You know, he's a part of recovery ministries, helping people reach sobriety. He was a part of humanitarian work in the Sudan when there was a genocide going on there, feeding hungry people, rescuing kids. I mean, just unbelievable stuff, right? I'll never forget him telling us he went back to one of his high school reunions it was, like a long, it was like a 30 year or something like that. It was 30 or 40 year. And all of his old buddies had become white collar executives or all these big, big businesses, you know. He said they were talking to him one day and they're like, Mike, man, you could have made a whole lot of money if you got in the business world, right? And they asked him this question. They said, What if you get to the end of your life and you realize all of this stuff was just not true? What then, huh? And I loved his answer. He goes, Well, I think about all the marriages I helped, I think about all the people I helped. Reach sobriety. I think about all the hungry people that we fed, all the water we provided, all the things we got to be a part of. And he said, you know what? I think it's worth it. Whew. Whew. Remember being asked a question in high school. They said, if there was no heaven, would you still follow Jesus? And if I'm really honest, most of my life, I'd say, nope. <laughs> I need that carrot at the end of the stick. But not anymore. You know what the best thing about following Jesus is? Following Jesus. It's the kind of life we get invited into. It's, it's sort of the, the, the richness and the depth that we experience, the way we see our life get caught up in something bigger than itself. That's the best part about following Jesus. And here I'm wrapping it up, I promise. In our part of the world, Jesus has a really big crowd around him, doesn't he? 
people who want things from them, people who love to sing songs to Jesus. Man, we love worshiping Jesus, don't we? You know, Jesus never asked us to sing to him. He never asked us to worship him. He did ask us to follow him. He asked us to feed hungry people. He asked us to clothe people, visit the stranger. That's what he asked us to do. And sometimes I feel like this, like saying all these nice things about Jesus, it's like a smoke screen. It's if I can just keep saying all this nice stuff about Jesus and to Jesus, I don't have to do what he said. I love you, I love you, I love you. I get it, now follow me. Do something about, I love you, I love you, I love you. You see, it's a smoke screen. Jesus wants us to follow him. I know some of you are like, I've heard this before from you, Nick. Yep, you sure have. And every now and then, I'm going to preach this kind of message. Because I just want to make sure you know what we're being a part of. we got a lot of new people in the room. I'll make sure they know what they're signing up for. I'm not interested. I'm not interested in providing uh, all the amenities for you. Not. We're going to take care of you. But I want to disciple you. That's what this is about. And, you know, I hope that you come here, and I hope that we're somehow a part of, of Jesus helping you get your life together. But, you know, even more than that, I hope we inspire you to go and give your life away. That's what I hope happens with your time here. And so let me just ask you, how are you doing with that? Where are you standing? Where are you standing right now? Are you in the crowd? Of course you are. We all are. We're all like that guy who has fuzzy vision. That's, that's, that's what we are. We're people who see, but we don't see clearly yet. We've always got one foot in the crowd. And if you're not able to recognize that, you might be the most dangerous person in the room. People who are dangerous are the ones who think their sight's perfect. It's not people who are willing to, I got room to grow. We all got room to grow. And every now and then, we need to be reminded of the invitation. The invitation isn't just to believe and have warm and fuzzies about Jesus. The invitation is to pattern your life around him. Or how are you doing with that? And not just in the big sort of community service project day kind of way. But in the small, unnoticed opportunities. What do you do when that person gets to dig in? They push the button. What do you do then? What do you do with your choices? How do you treat the people you live with? Sometimes we can go do a whole bunch of nice things for other people because we're just avoiding the other stuff we got to work on. Am I right? How you doing there? That's the invitation to pattern our lives after who Jesus is and what Jesus is about.